Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. Being a rock star comes with all sorts of privileges. There's money, fame, plenty of sex, lots of drugs. But those things can also be very dangerous. Take the case of Slash. In September 1992, Guns N' Roses was on tour with Metallica. Slash and the band were staying in San Francisco ahead of a show across the bay in Oakland. And after that gig, Slash died. Some drug dealers showed up at his hotel room at 5 a.m. with all kinds of stuff. And Slash took everything, including a powerful speedball, which is a combination of heroin and cocaine. He wandered out into the hallway, and that's where he encountered a maid. He tried to ask her where the elevator was, and wham, he was out. The maid freaked out and called for help. Meanwhile, Slash lay there on the floor. The paramedics arrived and gave Slash the old adrenaline needle to the heart trick, and he was saved. When he came to, he was told that he'd been technically dead for eight minutes due to cardiac arrest. That seems like a long time, but that's his story. He was transported to the hospital, but quickly signed himself out and was on stage for the next gig in Los Angeles two days later. About a decade later, though, he was diagnosed with heart disease and ended up with a pacemaker in 2004. Slash is far from the only person who has come back from the dead, or at very least came awfully close to going into the light. Here are some examples of rock stars who very nearly checked out long before their time. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. From 1980, that's the Jim Carroll Band with People Who Died, which lists the death of some real friends who went to meet their maker under tragic circumstances. Jim himself died in 2009 of a heart attack. He'd also been suffering from pneumonia and hepatitis C, and word is that he died while working at his desk. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is not really about death. Instead, it's about near-death experiences of some big names in the world of music. And I'm happy to report that as of this writing, everybody we're going to talk about is still alive. And they're lucky to be alive. Some dodged an accident. Some got sick, but were able to get better. And a few were like Slash in that they were actually dead for a few minutes, but managed to be brought back to life. Let's start with former R.E.M. drummer Bill Berry. In January 1995, the band started their first world tour in six years. They started out in Perth, Australia, and then moved through New Zealand, Tokyo, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore before moving into Europe. Things went very well through the first 10 shows of that European leg. But then things went very wrong for Bill on March 1st, 1995, at the Damali Ice Rink in Lausanne, Switzerland. During that show, Bill developed a bad headache. Nothing terribly strange about that. Might have been the altitude. But it got worse and worse. 
And then, about 90 minutes into the gig, as he was singing the falsetto part in a song called Tongue, Bill recalls feeling like somebody dropped a bowling ball on his head. He collapsed and could not finish the show. The drummer from Support Act, Grant Lee Buffalo, took over. Bill was taken to the hospital thinking, okay, I just need some rest and I'll be fine. But he wasn't. The next morning, the pain was so bad that he had no choice. He had to go to the hospital. And an MRI revealed that there was not one, but two aneurysms on the right side of his brain. One had ruptured and the other was about to. He was rushed into surgery where he underwent a craniotomy. Part of his skull was removed and a surgeon went in after the problem. Bill was lucky that the surgeon available was world-renowned for his abilities, craniotomies, aneurysms, and Bill suffered zero effects when it came to his brain function and motor skills. He recovered in hospital for about a month, with a band keeping him company and smuggling in fresh donuts. All shows were canceled until May 15, 1995, when Bill and the band returned to the stage in Mountain View, California. The official program for that part of the tour featured an image of Bill's brain showing the aneurysms. The incident served as something as a wake-up call for Bill. In 1997, he resigned from the band and now lives in Georgia as a gentleman hay farmer. Here's that song, Tongue, the one that caused the aneurysm to burst. Who knew that singing falsetto could be so dangerous? Our next near-death experience has to do with Dave Gunn of Depeche Mode. Like Slash, Dave also briefly died. Back in the early 90s, Dave was totally out of control. Heroin mostly, but he'd try almost anything. It got so bad that Primal Scream, who opened up much of the 93-94 devotional tour, was scared straight by Dave and the rest of Depeche Mode's debauchery. The tour had both its own drug counselor and drug dealer. There were run-ins with the cops. Martin Gore ended up suffering from seizures brought on by alcohol, drugs, and incessant partying. Andy Fletcher had to be checked into an institution, panic attacks. And Alan Wilder quit the band forever. And Dave? Well, he was in the worst shape of all of them. Dave managed to overdose a couple of times on the tour, including one occasion where a bump between the main set and the encore knocked him cold. When the tour ended, he couldn't stop with the drugs. He became paranoid watching the Weather Channel for hours on end. He began to have conversations with his collection of stuffed animals, and they apparently spoke back, too. He'd take a gun with him everywhere, even for a trip out to the mailbox. And there was always plenty of heroin around. There was a suicide attempt in August 1995 when he slashed his wrists, and there were plenty of overdoses. L.A. paramedics started calling him the cat because he seemed to have so many lives. On May 27, 1996, Dave was in one of the villas at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. At 1.15 the following morning, somebody called 911. Dave was found passed out on the floor. There were syringes all over the room. It looked like he'd taken a speedball. Paramedics were able to revive him not once, not twice, but three times. And when he finally regained consciousness, he asked the EMTs if he'd OD'd again. And they replied, no. You were clinically dead for two minutes. His heart had stopped. When I died, Dave recalled, there was only darkness. This humongous voice inside me went, this is wrong. Like, I don't get to choose when this is over. 
In the hospital, Dave says, the first thing I remember was that I exited my body. I was floating underneath the ceiling and I could observe what was happening to me. People were running around my body trying to save me. I believe it was my soul screaming, which had already left my body and became a witness to what happened to me. These seconds seemed like hours to me. And then suddenly there was complete frightening darkness around me. Then Dave was arrested on drug charges. He ended up on a one-year rehab trip. It was either that or spend two years in jail. The good news is that Dave has been sober ever since. There are plenty of other musicians who have had their hearts stop. Nicky Six of Motley Crue needed two shots of adrenaline to restart his heart on December 23, 1987. He was gone for two minutes. Phil Anselmo of Pantera OD'd on heroin on July 13, 1996. Cardiac arrest for four minutes. And one guy who knows exactly what Dave Gahn went through is Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. In 2001, not too long after Taylor joined the band, he had developed a serious heroin problem. He admits that he was partying a lot, but denied that he was a junkie. But then things crossed a line in London. This guy gave me the wrong line with the wrong thing one night, and I woke up going, what the F happened? It was a real changing point for me. That OD put Taylor in a coma that lasted two weeks. He calls it his happy nap, but it was anything but. In fact, that was almost the end of the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl had no intention of going through another situation where a bandmate died. This is why the One by One album took so long to come out. Taylor needed to get his act together, and Dave needed to step away from the band so he could sort his head out. That's when he briefly became drummer for Queens of the Stone Age, and for a while, it looked like the Foo Fighters were done. That obviously wasn't the case, though, and the Foos regrouped and moved on. And Taylor has managed to keep things sober. More stories of near-death experiences coming up, including the time David Bowie had a heart attack on stage. This is a program on the near-death experiences of some famous rock stars. Liver cancer eventually took down David Bowie on January 16th, 2016, but he had a close brush with death on stage in 2004 when he suffered a heart attack. Bowie was on his reality tour, and things were going well. Bowie was reported to be happier than he'd been in a long time. But then there was that show in Prague on June 23rd, 2004. He'd gone through nine songs when he left the stage. The next two songs went ahead without him. Then he returned to sing China Girl and Modern Love. And then Station to Station. It started and stopped, and that was it. Everybody left the stage. Ten minutes later, Bowie and the band were back to try to finish the song. Then they went into The Man Who Sold the World. And then they started changes, but ended after the intro. The story was that Bowie was in pain due to a pinched nerve in his shoulder. He was in a lot of pain, too. But he pushed on to play the Hurricane Festival in Schlesel, Germany, two days later. He didn't look good. But he managed to finish the entire set. And after an encore that featured Ziggy Stardust, he made his way down the stairs to the stage and then collapsed. A helicopter was called in and ferried him to a hospital. And it wasn't a pinched nerve. It was a blocked artery that caused a heart attack. Bowie underwent emergency surgery. And that was the last time Bowie performed live solo. 
he'd live another dozen years. But that heart attack scare caused him to reevaluate everything. He chose to live in seclusion for the rest of his life. And word is that he had at least another five heart attacks between 2004 and 2016. Bowie's last ever performance was on November 9th, 2006, when he played a fundraiser in New York. David Bowie and his last time before an audience, November 9th, 2006. Bowie is hardly the only person to suffer a heart attack in conjunction with a gig. On August 12, 2019, Peter Murphy was playing a residency at a club in New York's Greenwich Village when he started experiencing shortness of breath as he was doing a sound check. There was also severe pain in his left forearm. Then that pain enveloped both arms. He finished the show, but it was a slog. He went back to the hotel where he stayed awake, fighting for breath. In the morning, he called his manager and said, Hello. I think I might be dying. Murphy was taken to Lenox Hill Hospital, where he was diagnosed with a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. He needed two stents in his right coronary artery, and he ended up in a coma. He could have died during that show, but doctors said that the adrenaline of performing is what saved him from the heart attack killing him. Another guy who suffered a lot of health scares is Jonathan Davis of Corn. When he was a kid, he had a really, really bad case of asthma, so bad that he ended up in the hospital a bunch of times. In fact, he nearly died. Later, when Corn was at the peak of their success in the spring of 2006, Jonathan started noticing weird bruises all over his body. And at the end of each gig, he felt terribly, terribly weak. After enduring this for a few weeks, he thought he'd better see a doctor. It turns out he had something called immune thrombocytopedic purpura. This is a type of blood infection brought on, in Jonathan's case, by an allergic reaction to some medication he'd been taking. IMP results in low blood platelet count, meaning that Jonathan's blood had difficult clotting. That explains the bruises. A normal count is between 140 and 400. Jonathan's count was five. Corn was on tour in the UK at the time, but when the diagnosis came in, all further shows were canceled. Had he continued, Jonathan would have been in danger of having a brain hemorrhage because, well, he was headbanging all the time. He was in the hospital for four days, and it took about three weeks for his blood to get back in order with a regimen of steroids. He still has to be careful. Corn, featuring vocalist Jonathan Davis, who was at risk of headbanging himself to death as the result of a rare blood infection back in 2006. One more near-death story coming up, and this time it's Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age when he died on the operating table. I've met Josh Homme a bunch of times. He is a big strapping guy. He's about 6'5". I'd put him at 270 at least. Certainly a robust dude. In the fall of 2010, he needed some surgery. 
It was reported to be an operation on his knee, but that apparently wasn't it. But he did go under the knife for something to do with his leg. Supposed to be routine. Whatever the case, Josh says he doesn't like talking about it and how he ended up in the hospital, so we'll just have to leave it at that. What we do know, though, is that Josh was incorrectly intubated and ended up choking. Add in the anesthesia, and he stopped breathing. It's before he could be revived with a defibrillator. He flatlined there on the operating table and was officially dead for a couple of minutes before he could be revived with a defibrillator. And that was just one part of his issue. Here's a quote from an interview in the Mark Maron podcast. When I woke up, I knew something was wrong. Something had hurt me. Something was stolen from me. I'd lost something. I've always heard music in my head since I was a little kid. When I woke up, I heard nothing for a couple of years. And it affected me. My doctor told me after the surgery, I thought we lost you there. He was in hospital for 13 days before being discharged. But then it was discovered that he had contracted MRSA, the superbug staph infection that is resistant to almost every antibiotic available. Coating on the table was one thing, but it was the MRSA that really, really took a toll. He was confined to bed for four months with tubes in his leg. For three of those four months, he wasn't allowed to touch anybody because of the infection. His daughter was little at the time, and she wanted to be with daddy, but he had to yell at her to stay away. Mercy is a terrible thing. When he was able to move around, he had no interest in making music. And then there were the mental scars of the whole ordeal. It took a couple of years to sort out his head. He credits meditation as being part of the healing process. The depression, he says, was absolutely intense. Eventually, Josh got back to being something of his old self. He was cleared to start walking again in December 2010, and in January 2011, he started working on a new Queens of the Stone Age album. That was hard at first, because his heart just wasn't in it. And there were problems with the band, too. Longtime drummer Joey Castillo was fired during this time. Josh won't say why. And then Dave Grohl came to the rescue for the rest of the sessions. The album that resulted from this was Like Clockwork, which appeared in June 2013. And now that you know the backstory of this record, you may never listen to it the same way again. Josh Homme and Queens of the Stone Age with God is the Sun. And yes, Dave Grohl is playing drums on that one. The album was Like Clockwork from 2013. Josh still has an issue with his leg and has been using a cane on occasion. And there was follow-up surgery in 2017 after he aggravated the injury shooting a video. But he's in a much better headspace than he was back in 2010. Before I go, here are a few more stories of musicians who died and came back to life. Al Jorgensen of Ministry had been vomiting blood for a while, but didn't pay much attention to it. In 2010, he finally collapsed and was rushed to hospital where he went into cardiac arrest several times. Eventually, it was determined that Al was suffering from a ruptured ulcer. And when they opened him up, they found 13 ulcers scattered throughout his stomach and intestines. One of them was perched over an artery. Once that ulcer ruptured, so did the artery. And that's what nearly killed him. And producer and musician Nile Rogers says he was a terrible abuser of drugs and alcohol. In the mid-90s, he was partying hard with, of all people, Robert Downey Jr. when it all came to a head. Too much cocaine, too much alcohol. He ended up in hospital where he flatlined eight times. 
He'd actually been legally dead, and the doctors were filling out the paperwork when he suddenly started breathing again on his own. He was that far gone. One more. Aaron Lazar was the lead singer of the band The Giraffes. He was driving his girlfriend home one night when he suddenly slumped over the steering wheel. When he later regained consciousness, he was told that he died twice when his heart stopped beating. He was diagnosed with something called sudden cardiac death. This is not a heart attack. Something goes wrong with the signal from your brain that tells your heart to keep beating. Only 5% of people with this condition survive. Aaron ended up with an implanted defibrillator. And when it senses that his heart has stopped, it shocks him and he's back to life. All these stories are extremely scary. And if there's one thing that all these people have in common, I mean, besides being clinically dead at one point, is that they never, ever, ever have taken life for granted since their experience. All ongoing history shows are available as podcasts. Just download and go from your favorite platform. Rate and review if you get a chance to. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you are too, maybe we'll run into each other. There's my website too, which is always being updated with music news and information. Go to a journal of musical things.com and sign up for the free newsletter when you're there. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 